to In the Word with Pastor Don Haskins, where we open up the Bible to see what God's Word says and how it might apply to our lives. Our prayer is that you allow Jesus to change you from the inside out. And now, today's lesson. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul speaking, he's writing, he says, But when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood Peter to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and he separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, forward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Father, bless your word and help us to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, he is uh, taking a big step out there, isn't he? Paul is uh, a guy that uh, is kind of new to the group of the apostles. He calls himself an apostle, not by man nor through man, but by the will of God. What he means by that is that the other 11 disciples or apostles didn't get together and say, hey, we vote Paul to be the apostle. He says, no, I didn't need that. I just needed God to call me one because that's who I am. That's, that's, That's all I care about is that God calls me that. And so you remember as we have over the last few weeks, what happened is that Paul has, he got saved, he went to Damascus and he was blind for a couple of three days. He ended up getting his sight back from Ananias, who God called to go and to visit Paul, and to, his name was Saul at the time, to, uh, that he would receive his sight. And so he did. And though he was visit, physically able to see, his spiritual sight needed some adjustment. And so uh, what he ended up having to do, he talked about how for three years he went into the Arabian desert. He didn't immediately go down into Jerusalem to seek those apostles to find out, hey, what do you have to say to me? How can you add to me? Help me to understand. He said, I I didn't go there. Here's what I did. I went into the desert and allowed God to do this work in my life. God began to mold and shape and work in the woof and the wharf of my life of all of the things that I had learned over my whole entire life from a child all the way to this very moment to help me to understand that the things that I'd learned that I never was completely clear on i had it memorized i had the company line down as far as it pertained to judaism 
But there were some areas that I just struggled with. And for three years, God straightened those things out for me in the Arabian desert. And it was after 14 years that I went down into Jerusalem. And you'd think that I would have gone there first, but I didn't. And I did go down there, Paul's talking about in in the first part of chapter 2. He says, I did go down there and I did speak with the disciples. I spoke with the apostles, disciples, apostles, same thing in the instance that we're talking about here. He said, I told them what it was that God had done in my life. I told them that God had sent me to the Gentiles, just like God has sent Peter to the Jews. And they saw that God had done this work in my life. And they gave both Barnabas and I the right hand of fellowship. And they said that, you know, you know, remember the poor. That's all we ask of you. Just remember the poor. We understand that you understand the gospel. We believe that you fully comprehend the gospel. And so that's important for us today. Because Paul went down and Peter, I am confident, I am very confident. Peter was a part of that conversation down in Jerusalem where Paul and Barnabas went down from Antioch, Syria, down into Jerusalem to tell them, this is who I am, this is what God has done in my life, and this is what God has called me to do. And let's make sure that we're all preaching the same gospel. And they all agreed. And now, here it is, Peter he understands. He understands that Paul is, is on their team, but it's hard for him to take off the old cloak of Judaism and put on that robe of righteousness that we find in Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Peter, he's open to it. He's open to go. I mean, the Lord had to speak to Peter. You remember Acts chapter 10, wasn't it? Peter with a sheet. Remember the sheet? Cornelius, you remember? You remember that Cornelius being a Gentile, you remember that Peter was spoken to by the Lord to rise Peter, kill and eat. No, not so, Lord. For no unholy or unclean thing has ever touched my lips. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily accurate. We are talking about Pete. Here's the thing. It's happened to him three times. But he understood from that vision that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles. And so of all people, of all of the apostles... Peter is the one that goes up into Antioch, Syria, where there were Gentiles. It was mostly Gentiles up there in Antioch, Syria, in a city where they were first called Christians. And here Peter goes up to visit them and he eats with them. I mean, he's having hot dogs, pulled pork sandwiches. He's enjoying it, man. He's enjoying life. And then certain guys from James come up and they're having a hard time removing the cloak of Judaism because they're steeped in Judaism in Jerusalem and how hard it is to shed that cloak in the epicenter of Judaism, which is Jerusalem. And so they understand that the Gentiles, that the gospel is going out to the Gentiles, but they're having a hard time practicing it in the heart of Jerusalem because there's not a whole lot of Gentiles there. And so they, it's easy for them to morph back into their Judaism mindset. And now all of a sudden Peter goes up there to visit and he, he's going, wow, this is, this is weird. It's different, but isn't God great? I mean, this is great. I can, I can fellowship with Gentile people that I used to not be able to fellowship with. But then when certain men from James came up, he understood that that cloak of Judaism was still very, very strong down in the church, the church in Jerusalem, and he separated himself. So much so that Barnabas even separated himself. All the Jews did. They all went, separated themselves from the Gentiles, left their half-eaten hot dogs on the picnic tables over there, and started eating 
kosher food over here. And Paul couldn't handle that because this was right here. This was one of the biggest turning points in the church. If it was not taken care of right now, the church as we know it today could have been destroyed. And so Paul, he goes in and he deals with the most important issue of the early church, as well as for you and I. And that is to conclude why Jesus came. Look at what it says there in verse 14. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, that is the underlying power behind why and the emphasis behind why Paul is doing what he's doing. He's going, they're they're taking the gospel and they're not being truthful with it. They're not being truthful with the gospel. Now quickly, we're going to go through some of these things, but gospel, we know what gospel means, right? We understand that, right? What does gospel mean? Good news, news, right, good. Good news. Gospel in the Greek is euangelion. Euangelion. That doesn't mean a whole lot to you other than you want to hear me say it because it's kind of weird to say. Euangelion. And that means, literally, good news, glad tidings. You remember the, the angels and the shepherd, the story? We bring you glad tidings. That's good news. That's gospel. We bring you gospel. Well, understand that this word euangelion, euangelion is literally a noun. It's a noun. Now, who knows what a noun is? Austin. I'm just joking. (laughs) Huh? (laughs) What is it? Person, place, animal, or thing. All right, all right, good, good. Or better, it's, it's a noun. A, a noun is a word that functions as the name of some specific thing or set of things, which could be objects or places or actions or qualities or states of existence or even ideas. But do you know, it's interesting because as I was doing my study on here, and, and I, I will say I cheated because I, I know that I've done this study a little bit before, but... I guess you'd probably hope that I have, but but you on you on Galeon, you on Galeon. I thought you know that 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 word in the Greek sounds very similar to another word, and it's interesting. You on Galeon. There's another word that is called that that is is in the Greek is you on Galizo, you on Galizio. It's the same root word. The difference is, is that this is the verb form of the noun euangelion. All right? That's the first word. The noun, gospel, is a noun. But the verb form of the same word, euangelizio. Okay? And what that means, and we understand what a verb is, right? What is a verb? No, no. It's not a person, place, or thing. <laughs> That's how I always answer questions. So I always hit A on multiple choice questions. Um, but no, it's, it's what? It's an action word, right? Yeah, it's an action. Okay, so, so uh, a verb is a word that expresses an action, an occurrence, or even a state of being. So if the noun form of euangelio means gospel, what does the verb form mean? Well, let's look at this first and see what does this verb, what's the root word of this? The root word of both of the, the noun and the verb is euangelos. Euangelos. They all sound very similar, don't they? You, E-U, literally means to be well off. 
It's made up of two words. It means to be well off, to fare well, to prosper, or to be acting well. Okay? You hear that? Okay? To be acting well, or to be well off. And the second word is angelos. Angelos in the Greek, it means angel. All right? What does angel mean? Angelos. Angelos literally means messenger, one who is sent, messenger of God. So putting both words together, in order to be well off, in order to be acting well, an angel better be doing what God sent him to do, and that's being his messenger, right? Now what does all of this have to do with anything? We're talking about the gospel. The gospel is good news. The verb form is going out and sharing the gospel. Euangelizo. It's going out and sharing the gospel. And the root word is taken from, this is what an angel does. An angel goes out and is a messenger of the Lord. He has a job to do. He has a purpose, okay? When we look at the gospels of, you know, uh, uh, and I just kind of messed myself up because I have a question here. What do we effectively, what do we effectually call the first four books of the New Testament? The gospel, right? The gospels. We call it the gospel of what? The gospel of Matthew? The gospel of, the gospel of, the gospel of, right. Henry wasn't one of them. I don't know who said that, but. I'm just joking, Hannah. Listen, I, I didn't. I know you're on. You're, you now are recorded forever. The people think that Hannah said Henry, Gospel according to Hank. Here's the thing: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But here's the thing: the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. Is it Matthew's good good news? Is it Mark's good news? Luke's or John's? Is it their good news? No. Lest we get confused that the book is about any of the boys, Mark, the oldest gospel, by the way, it's the shortest, but it's also the oldest of all the writings, writes in verse 1 to set the stage for all that would come after in all of the book of of, uh, the gospel of Matthew. He says in the very first verse of his book, the beginning of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he makes no bones about it. Mark, which is actually, uh, most people believe that Mark is, is Peter's view of, of the gospel, that John Mark is actually writing and, and what have you. But Mark, what uh, Mark is saying, this isn't about me. This is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's good news. And, and so anytime you hear good news... And, you know, we've talked about this before, but in order to truly, fully appreciate good news, what do we also have to contrast it with? Bad news. I mean, how can you have good news if there is no such a thing as bad news? And so the bad news is, if you look at the bad news, the bad news is that there is a problem between man and God, right? There's a problem between man and God. That's the reason why Jesus came to rectify the problem between man and God. When we look back all the way in the book of Genesis, we'll see that there's a few different little times, eras, dispensations, whatever you want to call them. But when we look at from Adam and Eve until before the fall of mankind, that would be Adam and Eve wanting to follow the Lord based upon, simply, we just want to fellowship with God. 
We're going to serve him. We're going to love him. We're going to have fellowship with him and we're not going to sin. What happened? They sinned. Well, well, without the outside influence, with the exception of one simple tree and the temptation of the serpent, Satan, they would have been fine. But because there was a choice out there, they chose the wrong choice. And so having this physical relationship with God where they were walking with the, God, with the Lord in the coolness of the day, can you imagine what that would have been like? Well, one day we will imagine that. It won't be an imagination anymore. It's going to be in reality. We're going to see God. We're going to, be, we're going to behold him, and it's going to be an awesome time. Well, this is what Adam and Eve understand. This is all they know. They don't understand what you and I know. They don't understand that we pray to a God that we don't see. We see effects. We see answers. But I personally have not ever seen... I've never seen God physically in my eyes. And I know that metaphorically we can say many things, but actually the person, I haven't seen him. You know, it was, it was Thomas that after Jesus died and rose again, Thomas wasn't with the other 11 disciples. Judas had already died. So there was, I'm sorry, the other 10. So there was 10 other disciples. They were all in an upper room and Jesus came in and visited them and talked with them and Thomas wasn't there and they all talked to Thomas and said, Thomas, we saw Jesus. And Thomas goes, you guys are a bunch of jerks, man, that you would do such a thing. Don't you understand how bad of a joke that is? That's not even funny. I saw him die and I will not believe what you guys are saying. I know you're trying to convince me and it's just a joke. It's something wrong here. You're all twisted. I mean, that's just my own take on that because that's what I would probably be saying if my friends came and said, no, I saw him. I go, yeah, you're just trying to trick me. You're wanting, there's a video somewhere here and you're going to post this on YouTube. But I'm not going to believe unless I put my hand in his, my, my finger in his hands and my hand in his side. I will not believe unless I do that. A few days later, we know the story. I'm thinking Thomas doesn't leave their side from that point on. He's maybe secretly hoping that they're telling the truth. In fact, I'm going to say, I don't even think that he's secretly hoping. I think that he truly, truly hopes that what they're saying is true because you know what? They're not letting on that they're joking. This would be a cruel joke if, if it is a joke, but I want to see for myself. And then Jesus showed up, you remember, in the locked room. He shows up in there, the other side of the, the room. There's no door over there. Shows up, says, peace. And Thomas, he goes, Thomas, come here. Put your finger in my hand and your hand in my side. Isn't that, isn't that what you said? That's what you needed to see? Isn't that what you, what you said you needed to do in order for you to believe in me? Thomas doesn't even make it all the way over to the Jesus, man. He falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, because you see, you believe. More blessed are those who believe without seeing. And, and that's, I think he's talking about you and I. Do you know that Thomas saw Jesus? Do you know that Jesus said, you and I, if we've not seen Jesus, we're more blessed than even Thomas? I don't understand that because I think that's a pretty big blessing for Thomas. I sure would have liked to have seen it. I sure would have loved to have been in that room. I would not have wanted to have to go through all the things that they had to go through three, four, five, six days ago, you know, when, when Jesus died. I really wouldn't have wanted to have to go through all of that, the pain and the agony and the loss and the wondering, what in the world have I just spent the last three and a half years doing? I thought I knew who he was, but obviously, am I wrong? 
You know, I mean, all of those thoughts that are going through the, the, the minds of the apostles or the disciples, I think it would have been cool. But I haven't been blessed to see Jesus where Jesus says, come here, Don, stick your finger in my hand and your hand, my, your hand in my side. No, he's reserving that to say, Don, you don't need it. Trust me, you don't need it. Believe me. And so I believe, and so you believe, and so we believe in Christ even without seeing him. And, and it's, it, it blows people's minds because we understand the gospel. We understand the gospel. We've received the gospel. We have a relationship with an unseen God. Some people might think we're wackos. In fact, I know there's a lot of people that think that we're wackos. But you know, we're not. I'm not. Here's the thing. Adam and Eve, they had that relationship where they could see him at any time, and they they blew it. From Adam and Eve all the way until the law was given to Moses, they had an opportunity. Man had an opportunity to seek out God, and they didn't do it. Oh, some did. Some had a, a good relationship with him, but the vast, vast majority didn't. Enoch was a guy that had a pretty good relationship with the Lord. Other than that, not a whole lot. There's a lot of problems. I know we can look in the genealogy in the book of Genesis and you'll see there's some good guys in there, but you know what? They were all sinners. We're all sinners. And so from Moses, even all the way through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're now under a different kind of a, a, of a term. So from Adam until the fall in the garden, they had an opportunity and they didn't do it. From after the fall until the law was given, they still didn't do it. They still didn't follow the Lord. They still didn't have a right relationship with God. After the law was given, all the way until the time that Christ was resurrected from the grave, mankind still couldn't do it, even though they had a rule book. And because mankind could not do it, there was the repercussion of not doing that was that there was going to be death. There's a few different ways of death. There's death spiritually where you're separated from God. There's death physically where you leave this body. And the third is kind of like the first, except there's punishment added to it. There's not just death spiritually that you're separated from God, but that death that you're separated and you are suffering the consequences of your separation in hell. It's a horrible place. That's the second death. And and, and so man was given death. Now, mind you, what I've talked about from Moses all the way until Christ the resurrection of Christ, from the law given until Christ. That's what Paul's going to talk about here. He's going to talk about the law. If only we had a rule book. If only we could do it, we'd then do it. And here's the thing. No one was ever able to do that. The consequence was that you were lost. You were separated from God. Well, how do we make it right? That's the bad news. You can't make it right. You cannot make it right. The good news is that Jesus came and made it right. That's the gospel. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. By the way, sinners of the Gentiles is Paul just dissing the Gentiles. I mean, is he just really just kind of hammering them? Well, just understand, sinners and Gentiles were actually synonymous terms in their culture. It was in that time, it was just a synonymous term. Uh, a term, sinner and Gentile, same thing. Paul's going, hey, that he even makes that point, sinners of the Gentiles, I believe by him even saying that, 
it's striking a chord in Peter saying, Peter, you remember that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles too. Are you saying that we as Jews were not sinners? I think that, that was kind of a little dig at Pete. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Paul goes on, he says in verse 17, If while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners in Christ, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. If we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found to be sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. What Paul's saying is, okay, so here's the thing. If we are trying to be right with the Lord and we go and hang out with some Gentiles, we eat with them, does that mean because God called, Christ called us to do that, does that mean that Christ is the minister of sin because he's calling us to go and break God's law? He says, no. Absolutely not, if we seek to be justified. You understand justified. I mean, very quickly, I know that when I come across, I see it, it, you know, it's spoken of three times in the last two verses, but here's the thing. Justified literally means to render righteous or to declare or pronounce one to be just or righteous. And there's always a really neat little way, and I always want to, when I come across this word justified, I always want to throw this little ditty out there so that you'll remember it. And the idea is, if you look at justified and you never really completely understand what does that word mean, you don't understand the definition, just look at the word and, and break it up into the syllables, okay? You look at that and you say, just as if I'd, what? Never sinned. Never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's justified. God looks upon those who are justified as if you'd never sinned. And so verse 18, Paul, he goes, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. And so here's the thing. So you're saying, if, if I go and I eat with the Gentiles, which Christ has called us to do, right? Are you saying that because that's what Jesus told us to do, that Jesus is actually the minister of sin? He's actually calling us into sin? No, that's not true. You know that that's not true. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. And so here's what he's saying. I destroyed what the law of God could not do. The law of God couldn't make me righteous. Pete, he couldn't make you righteous. He couldn't make Barney righteous. He couldn't make any of the other Jews righteous. But if I seek to go back and try to put myself under the law because it makes me feel at home because that's what I've always grown up with, that's what tradition was, I've lost it. I've lost, I'm going back and I'm building up the old things that, that were torn down. And by doing so, I'm making myself a transgressor. Paul is saying to Peter, Barney, and all the Jews that are in front of all the Gentiles at that barbecue at the church in Antioch, Pete, you and I know that the Gentiles in Christ are no longer unclean. You know that. You remember that sheet thingy in your dream right before you met Yukon Cornelius the Gentile? If we build a bridge back to trying to keep the law and separating ourselves from the Gentiles, are, are we not sinning against the reason that Jesus died on that horrible cross? We can't do that. Pete, that's not a good thing. You know that. Verse 19, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Paul is not saying that, and please understand this, Paul is not saying that he has died from law, what I mean by that, such as law to himself. In other words, Paul is not advocating being a lawless individual. 
He still holds to a high standard and principle of morality and love and justice and ethics such as they relate to the nature and the character of God. But what Paul is saying, however, is that the religious standard by which God or by which man was once under to seek to live by in order to obtain holiness, the law, it no longer has a claim or a hold upon Paul's life to have a right standing with God. Paul has shown all through his writings that he attempted with absolutely zero success to find a holy standing before or with God through his lifelong efforts of trying to keep the law. He has failed to meet the demands of the perfect standards of the Mosaic law in order to find peace with God. It couldn't happen. Paul found that the law actually has this double double jeopardy effect on his life because anyone who would seek righteousness by keeping the law first, Paul found that the law showed him that he was a sinner. And then if that wasn't already going to punch you in the gut, the, the second foot comes in and punches you and says, okay, I'm showing you that you're a sinner, but secondly, I'm going to punish you for your sin. I'm showing you that you can't be righteous. I'm showing you that it's impossible for you to be righteous. And now I'm going to come in with the other foot and I'm going to say, and you will be guilty for it because you are responsible for your sin. You understand what I just said? The law was impossible to keep. You couldn't do it. That was the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to show us we couldn't do it. Something else had to come along. Now for us, as most of us are Gentiles, and so here's the thing, it might not mean that big of a deal to you, but please understand, it's a, big, it's a huge deal. You and I can't live righteously enough to satisfy the demands of righteousness and to have a relationship with We can't do it. We can't have a relationship with God because of our goodness, because of the works that we have. Anybody who seeks the law to find some sort of righteousness will always be found wanting. A poet once said, do this and live, the law commands, but the law gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word, the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. That makes sense? Hey, find the law. You'll find perfection. You'll, you'll find righteousness there. And then it ties your hands and your feet and says, you can't do it. But whereas the gospel says, you want to find righteousness? Let me give you the wings of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of the, of the substitutionary death and the blood of Jesus Christ for you, that gives you wings to fly. That gives you your ability to have righteousness. Paul realized that faith in Christ removed the impassable canyon that separated him from the dangling carrot of the complete righteousness that was required in order to have peace with God. Paul realized that Jesus Christ did what no person could ever do. Jesus lived according to the law of Moses perfectly, in sinless perfection. And in so doing, Jesus assumed the guilt and penalty that was due all mankind because if the human race had broken God's law. And Jesus, by dying on the cross, Jesus satisfied the required consequences of sin. In Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus fulfilled all aspects of the Mosaic law on behalf of the human race. Paul says, I have been crucified with, with Christ this is a huge verse in all of Scripture. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul says, Christ lives in me. It's no longer what I do externally on the outside that makes me holy and in right standing with God. It's what Christ has done in me that makes me holy. 
and in right standing with God. The law and the rules that I, must, that I place upon myself and others can only be accomplished on the outside. And be careful, gang. Listen, as Christians, you've been a seasoned Christian maybe for a, a time. The temptation for us, the temptation for you, is that when you begin to disciple someone, you begin to say, hey, this is what you need to do. You need to read you know, X amount of chapters in your Bible every day. You need to pray every single day. You need to get into the Word. And if you're not having a devotion, you're probably not saved. And, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. And you have to do this, and you have to do that. And you've got to go to church seven days a week. And, you gotta, and you start placing all these things on. You're putting another law upon someone. Be careful. Don't do that. That's not what Christ did. We don't, we don't study the Bible because we have to study the Bible. We don't pray because we have to pray. We don't, we don't minister to others because we have to minister to others. There's a big difference. We get to do these things. He used to be back in Bible college. One of my best friends in the whole wide world, Bob Davis, he used to always say, you don't have to do this term paper. You get to. It's great. The idea is, it was a Bible study. I mean, it was, it was you're going to dig in and this is going to have lasting fruit in your life for the rest of your life. The time that you put into this term paper is going to radically affect you for the rest of your life. And you know, pretty much most of my term papers that I did back in Bible college, I remember something about them and it helped to form and fashion who it is that I am today. I never got that in English or, you know, history or, or, you know, school, public school. But man, when I started digging into the word, I went to Bible college. All of a sudden I'm thinking, my goodness, this is, re- this is, this is, this is unreal. I can't believe that I'm studying this. This is transforming me. I can't believe that I didn't see this before. I never felt that way when I was in college, you know, back in secular college. I never felt that way. There's some things, you know, you go, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a cool thing that, you know, to study and to learn or maybe a cool book that I read or something like that. No, I could never really say that because I never read a book. But but there's certain things that you kind of go, oh, that's cool. But when you get into the Word, it just transforms. And so when you and I, we, 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 have to, we have to avoid the temptation. We have to repel that temptation that when someone is walking with the Lord, you, you, you get you know, a new believer under you, you get someone young in the Lord, it's easy to sit there and to say, this is what you need to do and that's what you need to do and you've got to go and you've got to be and you've got to... All these different rules and regulations, you're just sticking another law on them. You have become a, a jailer to them. You have placed them back into a prison. Because we've all had something like that done to us before, haven't we? Sometimes we do it to ourselves. How many of you have ever read, you know, you, you, all of us are probably, you know, struggling with something right now because here we are in February. It's February 11th. 23 years ago, I married my beautiful, my beautiful wife on this day. Here's the thing. You remember when you first came to know the Lord or when you, or when, when you have, uh, uh, here we, as I was saying, here we just ended the, the, the year. We've started a brand new year. Some of you started New Year's resolutions. 
How's that going? Some of our New Year's resolutions. Some of, some of your maybe New Year's resolutions as a believer, you go, you know what, I really just need to get back in the Word this year. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, right? In fact, that's kind of a, a good ambition to have is to get into the Word this year, right? But here's the problem. You've, you've, you've committed yourself. I'm gonna, I know what I'm going to do, man. Every day I'm going to read you know, a chapter. I'm going to read four chapters. Or I'm going to read ten chapters. And if you're really ambitious, you know you're going, I'm going to read ten chapters a, a day. And then you miss a day. You oh, pick it up. And maybe you do pick it up for a while and you're reading 20 chapters in two days, you know, two days later, you know. But what happens when you're at like 80 chapters? Ah, <laughs> oh, this is horrible. You walk around, you drag your knuckles on the ground, your lips out, a stinking little sparrow can land on your lip and poop on you because you're all burned out. And you're all, oh, I can't believe that I, I did this to the Lord. I'm horrible. Stop it. That's just law. You just place law upon you. You place unneeded requirements upon you. Here's the cool thing. Just pick up your Bible tomorrow and read until the Lord speaks to you. Just do it. That might be one verse. That might be a half a verse. Just spend time with Jesus. You don't, it's not that you have to. It's that we get to. Don't place undue nece- unnecessary rules and regulations upon us. That's trampling the blood of Jesus Christ underfoot. He set us free, man. He set you free. And hopefully today, this is going to help somebody who's here. You're going, man, all right, I'm going to go to church because I said I was going to go to church at least three times a month. And I haven't come the last two weeks. I'm already going to blow this because I'm only going to be able to do two times this month. Let Be free, man. Don't do that. I'm not asking you to do that. I'd love for you to come, but I don't want you to be here because you feel like you have to be here. I want you to be here because you love to be here. You want to be here. I want you to read the Bible because you want to read the Bible. Pray because you want to to pray. That's how Jesus wants. I don't go home because my wife makes me go home. I go home because I love her. What kind of a relationship would I have with my wife if if I've got to go home today? If I don't, she's going to give me a hassle kind of a relationship is that that's horrible that would be a horrible relationship that's not a marriage whereas nothing can make me holy but the grace that I have received into my life through what Jesus did for me by dying on the cross and raising again I receive that into my life. Jesus, by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, comes into my life to dwell within my being to accomplish what once was impossible, to make me holy and cleanse my sin. And he makes me fit for heaven to be accepted by God all because of what Jesus did for me and you and and us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. A story that I didn't come up with. John Corson, came, I think he came up with it, you know, many years ago. About Mr. Law and Mr. Love. I wish I could say that I was wise enough to come up with these kinds of stories, but I'm not. At the altar, this, I'll say it's you. You marry yourself to Mr. Law. At the altar, you get this 
Webster's Book of Lists from your groom, that Mr. Law, that says, these are the to-do lists of your relationship with me. As we're bound together in marriage, these are the things that you need to do. You need to wake up two hours before me in the morning to get my self ready to prepare for me, get my breakfast ready, get my clothes out, ironed, everything ready to go. Got to cook my favorite meals. Got to have my car prepared. It's got to be waxed. It's got to be vacuumed. There can't be a smudge on it, and there better be gas in it. I want my paper open to write where I like to read. I want the TV on in the right channel that I want. I want the house to be spick and span. I want to have go to my sporting events. I want you to buy the tickets. I don't need you to go with me. I want my lawn mowed. I want my feet rubbed. I want all this kind of stuff. And here's the thing. You, you've accepted this list. This is the list that is required of you in order to be married to Mr. Law. And so you have all this list that every single day you've got to accomplish in order to have a relationship with Mr. Law, your husband. (laughs) How kind of a relationship is that, right? You fail miserably. In fact, he points out every single fault that you do every single day, every single time without fail. What do you feel? Condemnation. You just constantly feel condemnation. And so Mrs. Law, she tries harder and harder and harder. But the more she tries, the more she fails. The more she fails, the more she's condemned for her failures by her husband. The more she's condemned, the more she's depressed. The more she's depressed, the more she realizes that she is stuck in an unwinnable battle. (laughs) One day she wakes up, as she's done every day before that, and she's preparing the morning for her husband, Mr. Law. But that morning something wasn't right. His perfect punctuality has been punctured, and he doesn't show up to the table for breakfast. She investigates. She goes up the stairs. Oh my gosh, he's dead. Did I kill him in my dreams last night? (laughs) He's dead. You killed him. Killed Dorothy. No, I'm just joking. What do you think happens to her list? He's dead. He's gone. It's not her fault. He dies. Happens that list. Some new guy. I mean, she's, man, I'm swearing off, I'm swearing off marriage. But man, she's in Starbucks one day and some guy comes in and just sweeps her off her feet. Man, this guy is just awesome. It's like, what is wrong with this? Something's got to be wrong with this guy because he looks good, he smells good, he he's, talks good, he's great eye candy too, you know, all that kind of stuff. Everything about this guy is awesome to you. And, and he meets you there. It seems like he's there every time you show up at that coffee stand and you're going, my goodness, this guy is like, he can't be this perfect, but ended, eventually, you know, things go on. You end up getting married to him. You're married to him, and he never stops. He's just that same guy every single day. He loves, and he cherishes, and he ministers and he washes and he blesses and he he just does all this stuff for this wife and she's going, I can't believe that I could have ever had it so good. And one day while she was cleaning, she happened to pick up something and something was laying down behind the dresser and she picks it up and she sees, 
oh my goodness, this is the old list. And she looks at the list and she's going, look at this list. And she starts looking at it. And she begins to go, I'm doing all these things and I don't even have to do these things. I do them because I want to. I do them because I love this guy so stinking much. It hurts sometimes. That's the difference between Mr. Law and Mr. Love. Jesus is Mr. Love. When you became married to Christ... He's not holding you to a, this law, this rule, that rule, this requirement, this, that, this, this many books, that kind of a, uh, of a prayer life, this kind of a devotion life, this kind of how many you, people you've got to talk to every day, all of this stuff that you've got to do or else don't even think about coming home. That's not Jesus. That's law. That's maybe you feeling you need to do that in order to impress Jesus. Guess what? You can't do anything to impress Jesus. There's nothing that you and I can do to impress Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were stinky, Christ died for us. I know I kind of exaggerated stinky a bit, but we're sinners. It wasn't anything that we did that caused him to love us. It was our sin. He saw the, the hopeless plight that we were in and he loved us anyways. He loved you anyways and he gave himself for you. Let me read, a, let me read something and I, I am almost done here. I'm going to read this. It's found in Romans chapter 5. But God showed his great love. I'm not going to read it out of the New Living Translation because it kind of softens things and makes it a little bit more personal and, and becomes a little bit more modern in the language and what have you. It's a, it's a pretty good translation for this passage. But God showed his great love for us while uh, by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's side by the blood of Jesus Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. And so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yet people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Yet still everyone died. From the time of Adam even till the time of Moses, even those who did not obey an explicit command, a commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol He's a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation but God's free gift leads us, leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it. They'll live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Almost done. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness 
brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But people sinned more and more. Or But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. And so just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us a right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I, I just want to finish with this. You remember what we talked about in the beginning? The word euaglion? Euangelizo? Euangelos? All of those words, meaning gospel, meaning taking the gospel. You remember that one was a noun, one was a verb. One was what it is, the other is what we do. You also remember the construction of this word, the root word is to be well off, is to be a messenger sent from God. Do we also know what the purpose of the incarnate Christ was? You know what that means? That's God coming in human flesh, incarnate. That's God coming in human flesh. That's Christ. Do we know that the purpose of him, what his purpose was? Luke chapter 19, verse 10. You can jot that note down and look it up later. But here's what Jesus himself says. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? Where was it lost? What was lost was a relationship with God. Where was it lost? It was lost in the garden. And now Paul says here in verse 20, I died. It's no longer me who is living in this mortal body of flesh, but now Christ is living in me. And by faith, he's calling the shots from now on. He tells me where to go. He tells me what to say. He tells me, he shows me who to reach. He leads me and he guides me and he gives me purpose that is far larger than one that I ever dreamed of. He has revealed to me just how much he loves every single person on this giant blueberry of a planet. And he wants them all to not only know how much he loves them, but also to carry on his original purpose through me through you, through us, to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we see Paul's passion and his jealousy for your church. I don't think that this is Paul. I think that this is you. I think that you desire to reach all mankind. And when you saw that there was error seeping into the church at such a young age of the church, you stepped in. You prompted our brother Paul to 
to swallow hard and to, to speak. Yes, it was awkward. Yes, it was tough. Yes, it was confrontational. But it was done out of love. And it was done because of the jealousy that Paul had for your church. That no man would ever feel inferior ever again at the foot of the, at the, foot of the cross. That you, God, can save all mankind because you love the world so much that you would give your own son, the incarnate Christ, the incarnate God, to die on a cross that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, it's your glorious purpose to reach the world around us. May we take your noun gospel and put it into action as we go with the angels. Even with you, Lord, you're not asking us to do what you yourself didn't do. You took the gospel to the world. You took the gospel to the people that you were sent to. God, now take us. It's our reasonable service. That's what Paul was doing. That's even what Peter was doing. That's what all those guys in the, in the church up there, Antioch, were, were attempting to do. That was their desire, was to serve you and to take you where you had not been before, to reach out and, and touch and minister and, and to love the unlovable and to reach those who seemed impossible to reach. God, you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, were working in and through that church. Nobody opened their mouth. They took what it was that Paul says. They received it and they were changed because of it. God, help us to be changed. God, help us to be men and women of passion for you, of understanding that, God, you're choosing to carry on your purpose through us. It's the reason that we even have our life and our breath in us this day. It's to go into this world as we leave this place here today. We're going to go into this world and we're going to touch people that you want to touch. God, open our mouth. God, open my mouth. Help us to see this lost and dying world through your eyes. Help us to care for their eternal state that they are in. May we love them with the love that comes from you. And Lord, the only way for that to happen is for us to couple ourselves with what Paul says. I have been crucified to my old flesh. It's not about me anymore. It's about you, Jesus. Now you take up residence. You call the shots from now on. You tell me where to go. You show me the people to talk to and I will carry on your purpose unless we don't mean it. And I don't say that to put a guilt in here, but God, I, I say that to convict my own soul. God, there are so many people that I have passed by just because it was inconvenient for me to speak to them. Forgive me, Lord. I am a stinking sinner, and yet your grace still shines through. Every single one of us we can be burdened under this condemnation that we haven't done enough. God, help us to not be burdened by that any longer. Help us to be convicted, but help us not to be condemned. The big difference, Lord, you know. When we are convicted, Lord, may we fall back in your arms and God, you give us 
you empower us with what it is that we need to accomplish the purpose for which you've placed us here in this day, for this moment in time. Use us. Please, God, use us. Do not let this day go for nothing. Use us. Use me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. So, did Jesus cause a change in you today? Or do you need prayer? We'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by visiting our website at calvarychapelcf.com or call our office at 941-926-3717. That's 941-926-3717. Again, thanks for listening to In the Word with Pastor Don.